Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Every day, except Saturday and Sunday, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I am Josh Newfeld of joshnewfeld.com. And I am Mike Houston of deanhaspiel.com. Together, we co-host Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. And today... We are here to talk about Minute 137 of North by Northwest, which starts with Roger pulling Eve up into his bunk and ends with a train going into a tunnel. (laughs) And it's not even a minute. (laughs) Yeah, it's 26 seconds. It's 26 seconds. So what what does it all mean? Now, I mean, now we know what, what happened. Well, we were wondering the in the last episode, in the last minute, about when he finally does, Cary Grant's character, Roger, finally pulls up Eva from the dangerous side of Mount Rushmore, hanging off that cliff. You know, they were about to die. He pulls her up, and we noticed something funny Yeah. in the last episode. She had been wearing orange, but we get a hint of white uh, of her clothes. So suddenly, there's like a... You know, she's changed her clothes in this m- moment, right? Plus, so, he called her Mrs. Thornhill. And what's which, that about? Yeah, I mean, th- as far as we know, the only Mrs. Thornhill was Roger's mother. Right. But we do know that he liked her a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think he There'd did- There have been pro- some hints. He proposed to her. Did he propose her on the train when he first met her? Well, she said something to him, and he said, is that a proposal? He said, you "Can't even say." It. <laughs> he said, "Is that a proposition?" Right. And then there was a little callback to that a couple of episodes ago, where he said something to her, and she said, "Is that a proposition?" And he said, "It's a proposal." Okay. So there's a hint. There's a hint that something hint. happened. Yes. Between her and him, almost dying, and him pulling her up, and I want to say that it's well. What happened is that it, it's a fast forward. Right? Yes. We've already been kind of thinking that the minutes we've been covering mm-hmm. have been some kind of foreplay. In fact, it's been a foreplay ever since they've met each other. You know, even though it's surrounded by this kind of spy story of hijinks and whatnot. But ultimately, what we're discovering in this last 26 seconds, in the 137th minute of this movie, is that this is an erotic romance. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's it because they don't explore it after he finally you know gets in the bed with her i mean yes he pulls her up into his bunk right uh it's a jump cut which was very cool it was a nice surprise but again because there's been so much foreplay you might as well get to where it needs to go and then it does this really cheesy thing of like god i don't even know how to describe it the the train going into a tunnel It's like a sexual metaphor, right? Well, okay. I looked it up. And according to the interweb, trains and tunnels have a great deal of symbolism. And according to the research that I've done, if you dreamed about a train going through a tunnel, it means that you should be careful because things are not as they look like. You should look more deeper in order to find out the truth. Mm. Alternatively, this dream can mean that someone will tell you a very important secret in the near future. So, you know, it doesn't say anything on the internet. On about, the internet about 
a, it being sexual. A sexual ma- so explain what you mean by that. Well, like my childhood understanding <laughs> is like when something goes into something. Yeah. That can Keep be talking like, like a sexual thing. <laughs> and I'm it, not making the connection. And he is here. pulling her up into a bed. True. A bunk bed in a train. That's true. And in fact, what's the line that said? Um, she says to him, oh, Roger, this is silly. And he says, I know, but I'm sentimental. And he's sentimental because... He, they met on a train. They met on a train. They're, well, what do you call it? Not consuming, not condescending, consummating. Mm. They're consummating on a train. Mm-hmm. I think, I believe. And consuming. And consuming. And there might even be a little condensa- well, condensation. Condensation. <laughs> that happens afterwards. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, it kind of ends quick. It's yes. done, donezo, right? Yeah. Like you build up all this tension, you know, all the drama, you, you you milk it, you squeeze out every aspect of how they're gonna die. They survive, and then they have sex. The end, mm-hmm. or they make love. They get married. The end. Yes. Right. So they have already gotten married. So in this jump cut, enough time has passed that they were able to get saved off the mountain he pulled her up to safety they somehow got up off of mount rushmore james mason's character was sent away the professor said okay you guys did your jobs right. and they got married and because now she's mrs thornhill but and now they're on their way back east we assume so two questions one is what is the time jump is it mm-hmm. six months later six days later well my feeling is that it's very recent because if you noticed roger still has some he has like some bandages on his fingers okay. from where he was being stepped on so right. i think it may have might have been just a day or two and then he just got married and they got married yeah shotgun and- wedding and do you think that the Rangers and the, you know, let's say the American side of the people at Mount Rushmore got hit to her being double agent? Is she still a spy? Is she done? Did she quit? Great, Is he becoming a spy? Yeah, good question. What's going on? Yeah. We don't get to know. Well, in the sequel, which you were talking about yesterday, I'm thinking about writing I think it. we'll find out about That's that. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, I mean, basically it, it just comes to an end and... On the one hand, I think it's really abrupt, but I think it's brilliantly abrupt because you don't need any more information right. than this. And you're not going to watch them have sex or whatever they're going to do in the bunk. And there isn't any more story to follow right now. So the mm-hmm. end, that's it. Yeah. No post credit scene, no mid credit sting. No. Nope. None of the other. And the credits are like literally the end. North by Northwest with that cool logo with the arrows and the MGM logo. And then it fades to black. The music ends. Was and all it's the done. credits up front? Is that why? All the credits are up front, right. which was much more common back in those days. Yes. And I remember as a kid when I would watch old movies that I would get so bored at the opening credits, they just would take forever and they'd usually be very dry and like just some orchestral music. But this movie has some great opening credits, if you remember. Yes. I think Saul Bass was the Saul designer. Saul Bass the design. Yeah. But like I guess the difference is in the old days, if there's long opening credits, you obviously have to sit through them if you're going to watch the movie. Whereas nowadays, with all the credits being shunted to the back of the film, you can leave the probably movie. 95% of the audience leaves as unless soon as it, the credits start. Unless it's like a superhero movie where they're... Right, which is probably another reason why Marvel 
introduce those post credits and mid credits things is to just to get people to stay in the theater mm-hmm. and watch mm-hmm. and then, like That's imbibe it. some of the the work that goes into making a movie all the, those the people. labor the thousands of people that have to work on these things are it's incredible. crazy how long like credits last in big budget action movies like how much work is is done you know in the production team and catering and all the other stuff like literally sometimes these credits will go on for 10 minutes or more mm-hmm. and that's a lot of people that work really yep. hard to make a film absolutely so did it make you think of any other kind of suddenly the very last shot of this movie becomes like a porno film right basically <laughs> and did it ever did it make you think of other kind of movies that kind of switch genre at the very at the very end like that <laughs> <laughs> no that's like i'd have to think about that like that literally at the last minute change into a totally different film i feel like there are i mean there's a movie i can i say. feel like you were kind of like humorously asking that question but i feel like there there uh, are absolutely yeah i can cite one where um you've seen something wild yes now the first two-thirds of that movie maybe jonathan maybe, demi john the demi and maybe, starring melanie griffith yep and so who was the... Jeff Daniels, maybe? Okay, or? yeah. So the first three quarters of that movie, or two-thirds, I don't know, remember how long, but is kind of like this kind of a comedy romp. It's a little sexy. Yeah, it's adventurous. never feels all that serious. Not that serious. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm caught up in a situation with a beautiful woman I just met. Now mm-hmm. I'm driving cross-country or something. And then toward the end of the movie, we meet her ex-husband, played by Ray Liotta. Oh, yeah, and then it I gets dark. one of his first movies... And it becomes so dark and harrowing, it becomes like a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the theater going, oh my God, this just changed genres. Yeah, me. yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, there's more to it. It didn't wait until the last 26 seconds. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't. <laughs> but one would hazard that that last 26 seconds, which is actually cut that in half because he still has to pull her up into the bunk mm-hmm. to then get to this like metaphorical image. Yeah. That. And and by the way, hold that thought for a second. Hitchcock did famously say that that scene represented exactly what people think it represented. It couldn't <laughs> represent otherwise. There's no subtlety in that in that ending, and there shouldn't be. You know, again, the whole movie is seeding this last image. Mm-hmm. It, it's the the payoff. It's the payoff. Yeah, it's the money shot. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to bleep out like half of what no. we're saying. <laughs> So I don't know. There's not a lot to talk about in this scene. I mean, I just feel spent. How about you? <laughs> I'm glad it happened. Yeah. <laughs> You're not re- going to regret doing this in the morning? I can't. <laughs> there is no walk of shame, trust me. <laughs> but I can't think of another way to end it if it's going to end abruptly. And like, you know, the bad guys get beaten. You know, hurrah, America. Mm-hmm. He gets the girl. She gets the guy. Right. What happens he next? He wraps it all up. It's all there. Yeah. I mean, it does make me think. And your question about, you know, movies like switching genres does make me think about the Coen brothers, which mm. who we've talked about before, as who are definitely, you know, inheritors of the mantle of Hitchcock in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I feel like some of their movies take similar turns that start out feeling like one kind of movie and then turn like Fargo you know in some ways feels very lighthearted at the beginning even with the subject matter because of the way Frances McDormand's character is that she's you know eight months pregnant and and everybody's so polite and kind and then it turns you know it's dark but it, it gets that way pretty early on and I was gonna say they're stays more, that way they're more of a good like mashup of mm-hmm. genres you know like 
that are consistent throughout the film. I don't know if they ever did a scene that uh, a scene arrives and you go, I'm in another movie right now. Right. You know? Yeah. Although, did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I have not seen that yet. So, it's not really a way to spoil it, but it's a long movie. It's a great movie. I love it. And there is a moment where you go to a place in the story mm-hmm. and it starts to become a horror movie. Not like Texas Chainsaw Which it Massacre. should be if you know what the general topic is, right? If you know the general topic, yes, you're kind of waiting for it to be a yeah. horror movie and I'm not, I don't want to spoil anything. But, but it's the Charles Manson murders and stuff. Yeah. There's a Sharon, Sharon Tate, Tate yeah. character. Manson appears and other characters mm-hmm. from real life. I know things don't turn out the way that they right. did historically. But there's a, something kind of in the middle of the movie that surprisingly takes you to a place that feels quite menacing mm-hmm. for a long period of time and it's very subtle and it's creeping and it becomes like how a horror movie mm-hmm. you know can get as it grows on you and, yeah and i thought wow what, it made me want to see a horror movie made by quentin tarantino because mm. he doesn't really do horror proper right you know well neither did hitchcock i mean hitchcock did psycho which is definitely a horror film but i was thinking about some of you know, his oeuvre, and I don't feel like that was a genre that he generally did in his films. I mean, it was obviously a big part of... You mean horror. Horror, right? yeah. You know, it was much more suspense and psychological and like a touch of humor and some whodunits and all that. But the horror thing, like he hit it hard in Psycho, but it wasn't like... I mean, I guess the birds could be seen as kind of a horror movie. It's it's that fine line between like a really intense thriller. Right. But... Like Psycho is definitely a horror film, I, I would think, say. I think we've talked about this, but William Freakin, who directed The Exorcist, mm-hmm. says it's not a horror movie. Mm. He didn't direct it as one. Mm-hmm. He didn't see it as one. Interesting. Anybody who ever sees that movie thinks they've seen a horror movie. Right. And it's not a horror movie. To him, what was it? Like a psychological portrait? Yeah, something like that. You know, like kind of what you're saying about Hitchcock. Yeah. You know, like suspense, thriller has horrific moments in it, mm-hmm. you know, but he didn't direct it to be a horror movie. And maybe that's because of what he thinks horror movies are to him, you know? Right. But yeah, it's kind of interesting when you discover the intent of the author, yeah. or the director. Well, I feel know. like horror is such like a blanket term and, and sort of like a bottom of the barrel, like it's really easy to do jump scares and to, you know... Well, the, that's bad horror. Yeah. That's cheap horror, you know? So it's like... Good horror any... is suspense, like mm-hmm. you're saying, or, or uses the tools of crime and thrillers and that kind of stuff so yeah. it lasts with you longer because right. of that you know? and then i think anybody who really cares about the artistic product that they're making even if everyone else feels like it's a horror movie mm-hmm. they're aspiring to do something that has a little more nuance to it and mm-hmm. combines elements of other types of movies and stuff mm-hmm. so i think that's kind of what friedkin was probably getting mm-hmm. to but i also was just thinking like who are the uh, the descendants of Hitchcock, you know, in filmmaking today. And I think we've already, you know, we've talked about the Coen brothers, which I, I think definitely, you know, just their framing of shots and the way that they construct movies follows Hitchcock. But I would say that Steven Spielberg, though not, uh, you know, the subject matter wasn't really, isn't really consistently similar to Hitchcock, but his way of framing shots and his like very creating drama, like Jaws, unique way you know? of creating drama. So basically definitely. what you're saying is that the ending of this movie, what did it spawn? Mm-hmm. What did it give birth what to? what happens, yes, <laughs> nine months later. That's right. So who were the filmmakers? Who is Brian De Palma? Mm, well, Would he's you, clear, for sure. been called a thief at times. You mm-hmm. know? I do like a good Brian De Palma movie. Mm-hmm. Coen Brothers, like you said, but I think they add their own unique twist to it. I do agree that... Spielberg, who's such a great storyteller cinematically, yeah, probably borrows aspects. I would even say Scorsese at times when he's really 
when he's done more thriller types of like his version oh, well, like of, Cape Fear, even yes. though that wasn't a Hitchcock movie, it felt like a proto Hitchcock mm-hmm. movie when Scorsese and directed his remake of it. M. Night Shyamalan is oh, trying yeah, his yes, best to for do sure. Hitchcock, mm-hmm. And he's pulled it off a few times. A couple of times. Maybe twice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and well, did you see Glass? I did not. So it's not a great movie, but it's very Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And, and there's like a comfort, like when you watch even a bad Hitchcock ripoff, you still kind of enjoy the experience of of that sort of style of movie making. Yep. But I do think that there's a lot of, and I'm trying, I feel like there must be other current filmmakers that are kind of doing a Hitchcock thing. And I'm just drawing a blank right now. Yeah. That. Well, you listeners... Feel free to chime in on the man on oh, Washington's nose and and uh, tell us who are the who's who are today's Hitchcock directors. And what did you think about the ending? <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question for you as we start to wrap things up. Have you ever been on a sleeper car on a train and and been in a sleeping bunk and taken an overnight train where you got to use a sleeper car? I've seen so many movies where there's a sleeper car. I think I must have seen some like it hot a million times. Oh, such a great movie. And I feel like I've had dreams where I, but I don't dreams think about trains going into going tunnels. tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> that I, I don't think I have. Did you? Yeah. Two times. Um, when I was a kid, my mom and I took a train from Vancouver to Winnipeg. We were in Canada and we went east across Canada and we took a sleeper car train and I just remember that it was one of the most fun experiences of my life because it was like we didn't usually travel in style in those days no matter what but like that was long enough ago that even normal people who were taking a sleeper car and a train was were treated like nicely and I remember like a steward came in and like set the bed up and pulled down the covers and all that sort of stuff. And it just felt like really fancy and exciting to go to sleep on a train, especially as a kid. And then the other time that I did it is when I was traveling with my then girlfriend, now wife, Sari, we were backpacking around the world. And we had bought a one-way ticket from New York City to Hong Kong and then spent a little while in Hong Kong and ended up in Thailand, and we took a train from the capital city, Bangkok, up to the northern capital, Chiang Mai. And that was an overnight train. And it was much less fancy than the one that we had been on in Canada, because it was sort of like everybody. I mean, there was like third class people who had to just sleep in their seats. But I think pretty much everybody else had like a bunk. And it was sort of an open car with bunks, more like in um, Some Like It Hot, that style. And again, stewards came along and they pulled down all the bunks and, and there were like little curtains in front of them. And Sari was in the bunk below me and I was in the bunk above her. And it was really kind of fun. But it was, you know, sort of in public, like there were all these other people around too. But I just remember that same kind of sense of excitement and adventure. It's like just a novel thing, you know, to sleep on a train as it travels. And you never felt like you could get robbed or attacked or the train would crash or none of those well, Feelings. I mean, <laughs> the train would crash. Yeah, because if I'm not awake to, mm-hmm. to make sure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, you know, there was always that sort of fear as a backpacker that you got to keep an eye on your belongings and make sure there's a little lock on your backpack and all that sort of stuff. But I guess we just kind of trusted that. I think there were porters who would go back and forth quite a bit, you know, patrolling in the sleeping time and make sure that people weren't 
engaging in any tomfoolery. So yeah, I think at a certain point you just have to trust the universe, you know, mm -hmm. and nothing, or, or nothing bad happened, or you, you don't, don't travel don't exactly. Anywhere. That's right. So. so yeah, that was my experience on a sleeper car. And then my last question for you, since we do a podcast called Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, and our last season was about American Splendor. So the stars of that movie, which is based on the real life of Harvey Picar and his wife, Joyce Brabner, are Harvey and Joyce. And they are about as far removed as characters from Roger and Eve as you could possibly get. They're not debonair. They don't live in New York and work in advertising. Harvey is a file clerk at a VA hospital, and Joyce was a sometime comic book writer and sort of promoter of Harvey's work and activist. an activist. So how would they have reacted, do you feel, if they had been thrust into this movie? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, curiously, I think, I think Joyce would have probably tried to help and figure some stuff out. Interesting. Because she is an yeah. activist. She's a go-getter. Go right. Not that Harvey isn't a go-getter, but I feel like he wouldn't be bothered. Right. I mean, he he's just to be. genuinely very cranky and irritable and easily annoyed by other people. So it seems like, like I'm trying to imagine that opening scene where he gets kidnapped right. by Valerian and the other henchmen. Like, how would he have dealt with that? And then, like, how would the movie have progressed from that point forward? You know... These things just pop in your head. You brought up a question I had no idea you are going to ask. But did you ever see True Romance? Yes. And Dennis Hopper with Christopher Walken. Remember that scene? When they're looking for Dennis Hopper's son, played by Christian Slater. So, And this is a Quentin Tarantino film. Quentin Tarantino written film. Right. Directed by Tony Scott. Right. And there's a scene where Dennis Hopper is basically covering up her son who's, you know, who's split with his, his girlfriend. And these bad guys are looking for him. I forget why right now. And Christopher Walken is this bad guy. And he's basically kind of beat up Dennis Hopper with his henchmen. And he's kind of got a gun to his head. And then they have this amazing long scene where Dennis Hopper just goes to town on him about being a, a certain kind of Sicilian. And it becomes very racist, to be honest. Hmm. But it's also kind of like his last hurrah. Like, he's just like, I'm done with you. If you're going to kill me anyway, then I'm going to take you down. Mm. You know, attack like you verbally, back. Verbally attack yes. you. I feel like that's how Picar uh, could totally see that. Could like, you know, if he could size you up mm -hmm. and find a way to hurt you, you know, with his intelligence. Right. I feel like that's what he, he would He would not shirk from that. Yeah. Yeah. If, especially if he knew he was, you know, going to be killed. Mm -hmm. You know, he might take that one final jab at you in that way. You know? So you can't see him hanging on the side of Mount Rushmore. But no, but I can see Joyce. He would never have gotten to that point because Joyce could totally have done that. Yeah. yeah, yeah I could I, see her. I feel like she could have done it all. You know, like she could play both characters. There you she go. could be the double agent <laughs> and, you know, the ad exec that's thrown into this situation, you know? Interesting well, question. Yeah. Well, if this kind of discussion intrigues you, then you should definitely check out Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, where we break down the movie American Splendor, scene by scene. We have lots of incredible guest stars, including actors from the movie, musicians, uh, the producer, the directors, and other illustrators who worked for Harvey, as did we, on his long-running series, American Splendor. And you can find that at scenebyscenepodcast.com or on Facebook at Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. And Dean, you have a Facebook and Twitter. Where can people find you? Just my name, Dean Haspiel. 
on Twitter, Facebook. What about Instagram? Okay, so Instagram is Dean Haspiel underscore art. And there we can see examples of your work and Absolutely. all sorts of other fun stuff. And same with you on Instagram. Yeah, I'm on Josh Newfeld on Instagram, Josh Newfeld on Twitter and Facebook. So since we're wrapping up this season of the Hitchcock Minute, I want to give a shout out to all the teams of hosts who preceded us. And there were 15 teams altogether. So the first ones, the ones who kicked it off, were Alan J. Sanders and Walt Murray of The Wilder Ride. And then there was Robert E.G. Black of Mandy Sucks. Then Tyson Ferris and Jeremy Sternhagen of Real Jaws Minute, followed by Jonathan Howell and Chris Ramirez of Minute Impossible. Then came along Brent Stillo and Josh Horowitz of Five Minutes of Bonsai. And then the great trio of Tom Taylor, Pete Mummert, and Jerry Porter of the Indiana Jones Minute, followed by our old buddies Alex Robinson and Pete the Retailer from Star Wars Minute. Then it was Edge of Tomorrow Minute, hosted by David Forsyth, Rocketeer Minute with Hal Bryan and Jim O'Kane. That's a name we'll come back to. Then there was the Watchmen Minute with Travis Bow and Eric Nash, Groundhog Day Minute, Dave Pallas and Sean German, the MASH Minute with Tierney Steele, Callahan, and Megan Coleman. Jay and Silent Bob Minute with Jeff Ferry and Chris Durkacz. And the Better Off Dead Minute guys, Jason Hummel and Curtis Blows, preceded us, scene by scene with Josh and Dean. And the whole show, the Hitchcock Minute podcast, was put together by senior executive producer Jim O'Kane. Thanks, Jim, for bringing us all on board to do this really fun project. It was a real honor for us to be part of the crew and a real privilege mm -hmm. to be given a chance to ride this train into the station. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> and uh, hope you enjoyed what you heard over the last seven months. Remember, you can find all the previous episodes of the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at the main site, HitchcockMinute.com. On social medias, the Hitchcock Minute is available at The Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook and on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed this deep dive into Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest on this, the Hitchcock Minute. So until next time, goodbye, dear listener, whoever you are. Thornhill, wherever you are.